This morning, we're going to continue our series in the book of Proverbs that we've been calling Word to the Wise. Now, in this series, we've talked about wisdom as the art of making life's best decisions in the moment. You know, we might be able to come up with all the right answers if we sit and think about it for a while, but life has a way of coming at us faster than that. Our emotions come at us faster than that. And so how we respond in the moment is the measure of of, of wisdom in that it's how do I initially respond? What is my response when, when something comes across my life? How do I act? What do I say? What do I not say? And we've also talked about how the Proverbs are principles and not promises. You know, we read through some of them and it seems like if I do this, this will be the outcome. But Proverbs don't work that way in practice. Sometimes it's like that doesn't, that doesn't actually always come through with their general principles. They're not guarantees, they're guides for how to live a wise life. So this morning... We're going to look at a topic that, on the one hand, we talk about all the time, every single day, multiple times a day. And yet, on the other hand, we don't talk about it at all. This morning, we're talking about money. And we talk about money constantly. I mean, the number of times in the past couple of months I've heard the words inflation and the economy and gas prices and even this past week, student loan forgiveness. Like those words keep coming up. We talk about money all the time. What does the stock market do? It's always in front of us. But at the same time, we don't talk about money. Not our money, at least. We talk about money out there. We don't talk about money back here. In our culture, Personal finance is a personal matter. So like this morning, for example, if I had said like, hey, good morning, welcome. Why don't you greet each other? Tell each other where you're from. You'd be like, hi, I'm Kyle. I'm from Ohio. Nice to meet you. But if I had said, hey, good morning, welcome. Tell each other how much money you make. There would be a very awkward moment. We just don't talk about my money, how much I have and how I spend it. And while we don't talk about money much, the Bible certainly does. By my count, there are over a hundred Proverbs that deal with money. And Jesus talked about it a lot. He was not shy in the slightest when it came to talking about finances. And it was often personal too. It was often directly to a person about how they were choosing to live. So this morning... We're going to talk about money. And we're going to start with Proverbs 11, 28. Proverbs 11, verse 28, where King Solomon wrote this. Those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. It's a pretty straightforward sentence. If we trust in our riches, it's not going to go well for us. Riches cannot support us. They can't hold us up. They will come, we will come crashing down if we try to place our trust in riches. We will fall. But as I sat with this proverb, kind of questions kept coming up. Like, for example, 
Why did Solomon feel the need to issue this warning? What is it about money that made Solomon think, no, this needs its own specific warning about trusting it? You know, I think the reason is that money is often one of the biggest competitors in our lives with our devotion to God, and I don't think we realize it a lot of the time. Hopefully to help illustrate this, I want us to play a little like fill in the blank game here, all right? Like I'm gonna say something and give two possible answers and I wanna know which one of them for you, pay attention to how you feel. Which one feels better to you? Ready? If I lose my job, it'll be okay because. Because What? I know it'll be okay because God is with me and he is faithful. Or I know it'll be okay because I have money saved up in the bank. Which one of those puts your heart more at ease than the other? College students, first of all, welcome back. (laughs) Second of all, imagine going home for the weekend, your parents sitting you down to have this serious family conversation like, we're losing our job. Our source of income is gone. But don't worry. God is with us. We have savings. In the moment, what is your initial reaction? Does having God or having money make you feel better in that moment? God made sure this proverb was in the Bible because he knows how easy it is for us to slip into trusting in money instead of him. And this temptation is there whether we are rich or we are poor or we're somewhere in between. Because if my bank account has a big enough number in it, I can think, my future is secure. I'm okay. I will be okay trusting our money. But if my wallet is empty, I can think, man, if I could just get enough money, I'll be fine. And we're still putting our trust in money. It's just, we're trusting it that it will save us rather than it is saving us. Either way, it's me trusting in money, whether I have it or not, if that is my thinking. And then another question came up to me while I was thinking through this verse. And it's, it's why do we trust in riches what is it about money that draws us to trust it instead of God you know I think it's because money does a really really convincing God impression money does a great God impression so much so that at times we mistake it for God money gives us a lot of the same things that God does, albeit in a more watered-down version. And so we're tempted to trust money, to trust money to provide. Because money puts food on our plate and it puts a roof over our head. And, but ultimately, God provides those things and God provides so much more for us and so much better things for us. But we can see how money does that, how money provides. And so we can come to trust money to continue to provide for us instead of trusting God to continue to provide for us. Or we trust in money to protect us. 
We think that, that money can give us security in case something happens for a rainy day, whatever happens tomorrow, if I have enough money, then I will be, I will be secure through whatever comes. And yet, how much control do we have over what happens to money tomorrow, let alone what happens to us tomorrow? God is ultimately the one who secures us and protects us. No matter what happens tomorrow or today or, or any time in the future, because we are safe with him. Or we trust money to bring us pleasure because I can just buy the stuff that makes me happy. I can buy the stuff that makes me happy. But then, you know, that new car smell wears off. Those new clothes wear out. That new tech gadget is, becomes obsolete. Meanwhile, God is there saying, I'm offering you freely joy that will last. It will not fade. It will not break. Come receive this from me. We are constantly tempted to fall for money's God impression and put our trust in riches instead of God. But if we do that, ultimately we will fall because money and riches overpromise and underdeliver. And Proverbs eleven twenty eight says that. It doesn't say how or when, but it tells us that things will fall apart for us. If we look to money to do what only God can do for us. If we put our trust in riches, we will fall. And then we come to the second half of Proverbs eleven twenty eight. But the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Now, it's, it's common for Proverbs to use contrast to help make their point. They put up opposites that are held next to each other to highlight the difference between them. And there's a contrast in this verse here. But it really is not what I would have expected. You know, I have, I have four kids and the youngest two are going to start preschool here in about a week and a half. And one of the things that they're going to learn in preschool is about opposites, right? There's big and there's small. There's, there's soft and there's hard. There's tall and there's short. I don't know that I would have said righteous is the opposite of trusting in riches. I would have thought trusting in God would be the thing that came after but no, this is bigger than that. Righteousness, the righteous is, is a bigger category. It's a broader category. It's about trusting God, yes, but the righteous has more in view than just trusting God. It includes trusting God, but it's also living the right way. It, it's about rejecting what is wrong and evil and pursuing what is right and good. It's not a passive trust, but it's an active action towards what is right and good. And this proverb says when we do that, when we pursue what is right and good, we will thrive like a green leaf. And as far as I can tell, there's no secret or hidden meaning to this green leaf thing. There's no background other than a leaf is green when it's flourishing. It's experiencing fullness as a leaf. Things are good if the leaf is green. So in contrast to things eventually falling apart for someone who trusts in money, someone who is righteous will thrive. That doesn't mean the bank account is full. It doesn't mean that they won't have any problems, but it means that there's a fullness in life that God gives us. 
Because we're living how he designed us to live. We're living as he's called us to live. And so there will be freedom and there will be fullness living as he has called us to. So Proverbs eleven twenty eight is pretty straightforward to understand. If you trust in riches, it's not going to go well for you. But the righteous, it will go well for them. But even though it may not be hard to understand, it brings up a lot of other questions. Like, I know I'm not supposed to trust in, in, in money. I get that. I, like, that's, that's clear from this verse. But money plays a huge role in our daily lives. We cannot avoid it. We spend money almost every day. We think about money definitely every day. So what does it look like to turn away from trusting money to being righteous and wise with our money? What does it look like when I handle money in the way God says we should, when I handle it wisely? Well, there's an interesting story in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 3. I think this, this story will help us to start answering some of those questions about what it looks like to handle money God's way. Now here in Luke 3, we meet a man by the name of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, who is this guy? Well, <clears throat> there are a few different Johns in the New Testament, but this one was Jesus' older cousin. And before Jesus started teaching and performing miracles and everything, John was calling people to turn from their sinful lives and turn back to God. He was continually warning them of the dire consequences if they continued to reject God and live their own way. Now some people, when they heard this message, they responded and, and they, they said they wanted to turn back to God and so John would baptize them. He would dunk them in water as a symbol of their new direction in life. So that's what's going on here in Luke chapter three. John calling people to turn back to God and they were responding. They wanted to follow God. And so then we hit Luke 3, verse 10. And here's what it says. And the crowds asked John, what then shall we do? All right, I know I'm one verse in, but pause for a second. These people realized that their lives couldn't stay the same if they were going to follow God now. This was not an easy like, I'm sorry, back to life is normal. Something had to change when they turned back to God. They had to do things differently. So their question was, we want to follow God. We want to do what is right and good according to him. We want to be righteous. So what in our lives needs to change? The assumption is something has to change. What then shall we do? All right, back to Luke 3. The crowds asked John, what then shall we do? He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and he said, and, and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Three different groups. Three different groups came to John the Baptist. How should we live differently now? And did you notice a theme in his answers? To all three groups, the crowds, tax collectors, and soldiers, the first thing he said is that their relationship to money and possessions needed to change. The first thing he said. They didn't ask about money, but that was the answer he gave. We want to follow God now. Great. Change how you view money and possessions. 
Not at all what I would have expected. I would expect something about more spiritual, about like praying or about studying the scriptures or about sacrifices or about something like that. But instead, he points to money. This goes to demonstrate that how we view and handle money should set us apart from the normal patterns of this world. Because God's definition of what's, what it means to be wise with our money is different than our natural thoughts and different than the message our culture gives us about how to be wise with our money and to grow our portfolio and to, to protect our assets and all of those other things. So we're going to look a little closer at what John says here to get a clearer picture of how God wants us to handle money. And as we do, we'll pop back to the book of Proverbs a couple times to see some of what it has to say as well. So the first thing we're going to look at is that John said, be content. Be content. Be happy. Be satisfied with what you have. In verse 14, John says this explicitly to the soldiers. Be content with your wages. Don't sit around wishing you had more. Don't spend all your time scheming of how to make more money. And so step one in being wise when it comes to money is to stop chasing it. Stop focusing on it. Stop making it the goal of your pursuits. This idea comes up in several places in Proverbs as well, like Proverbs 8, verses 10 and 11, which say this. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with wisdom. No matter how much money, no matter how much gold, no matter how many possessions, it all pales in comparison to the value of wisdom. And so money and possessions shouldn't be the main focus of our pursuits because it's just not as good as the things that God offers us. Money doesn't save. Possessions don't satisfy. They don't last. We spend money and it's gone. And the pleasure, any pleasure that it brings to us fades. But this is so hard for us to grasp. And part of why it's so hard is because we are constantly being told that we need more. We need something else in order to be happier or safer or healthier or more comfortable or look better or enjoy life more. You know, they've done studies on how many ads we see a day. In one form or another, the average American sees something like 6,000 ads a day. 6,000 thousand ads. I did the math. That's like one a second. And that's actually on the low end of the estimate. 6,000 ads a day, thousands and thousands of times a day we're being told, Hey, you need this. Hey, check this out. This will make you, this will be better. This will make you happier. This will make your life easier. You want like, look over here, look over here. You need this. You have to have this constantly being told we need something more in order to be good. And it is so hard to swim against that barrage, to swim against that tide of constantly being told that what we have is not enough. But all of those things will never satisfy us. And that is by God's design. God doesn't let those things satisfy us. Any satisfaction that comes fades. It will never be enough. And that's because God knows that he is the only one who can satisfy us. 
That is how he created us in the beginning. In the garden, Adam and Eve were with God and it was perfect. And that's how it will be at the end. God and his people together and it will be perfect. There will be complete satisfaction in him. But now in this in-between, we keep trying to grab other things, trying to find perfection in money and stuff. And it's not there. It's a fool's errand to keep chasing after it. Meanwhile, Psalm 107 says, God satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. God says, pursue me, not money. And your longing soul will be satisfied. So when it comes to our relationship to money and possessions, God is calling us to be content. Another thing John says here is that if we're going to live life God's way, with respect to money, we need to be ethical. Be content and be ethical. John aimed this one specifically at the tax collectors and soldiers because they were known to cross the line when it came to making some extra money. Verses 12 through 14, he told the tax collectors, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And to the soldiers, he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And, and I think this one's really connected to contentment. Because if we aren't content with what we have, there will be a temptation to cross lines that we shouldn't cross in order to get the thing that we want and feel like we need. And that is exactly what the tax collectors and soldiers were doing. Tax collectors would go around telling people that they owed more than they actually did, and then they kept the, kept the extra. Tax bill says 100, well, you owe 125. And then they give 100 to the government and they put the extra 25 in their pocket. And then they would do the same thing over and over and over to the next person, to the next person, to the next person. They were exploiting people for money. And this wasn't even technically illegal. This wasn't considered theft. But just because something isn't illegal doesn't make it right or good or wise. Now the soldiers, they would do something, diff- something similar. They were known to, to bully and blackmail people. So, I mean, think about it. Like, first century, there aren't, you know, cameras. There aren't security cameras to capture what's going on. So, if a soldier lied and said that you attacked him, you could be imprisoned. You could be beaten. Maybe something worse. So, every now and then, soldiers would come around and say, like, hey, uh, pay me a hundred bucks, or uh, I'll have my friend here punch me in the face. We'll say you did it, and then we'll see what happens in that Roman jail. I don't know. You can take your chance if you want, or you can pony up. Thank you for your business. See you in a month. Just like the tax collectors, they would lie and take advantage of people to make some extra money. And multiple times throughout the Proverbs, it talks about the importance of being ethical in financial matters. For example, Proverbs 11.1 says this, The Lord hates dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with him. Dishonest scales, a scale would be used to weigh products in the market that people were going to buy. Think about like paying by the pound, that sort of thing. Well, a scale that was intentionally designed to rip off customers, God hated that. So I charged them for two pounds, only gave them 1.8 pounds. Not a big deal. God hated that. Now, that's really strong language. The Bible doesn't often say God hates something, but this is one of those places. 
And it's not even that big of a thing, right? Like something as small as a dishonest scale at the market. Proverbs 11 isn't talking about multi-million dollar con artist Ponzi scheme stuff. God hates lying, even if it's as small as a dishonest scale. And sometimes we're tempted to do similar things. Maybe your roommate asks you to pick up a few things for them when you run to the store and you check out and you're like, okay, this stuff was 22 bucks. And you get back, you're like, yeah, it was something like 25. And they Venmo you 25. Dishonest scales. God hates that. Or maybe you like add a couple extra hours to your time card that you didn't actually work. Lying to get a bigger paycheck. God hates that. Or maybe like stretching the truth a little bit beyond what's actually the truth in a job interview. Because man, it's a good paying job. Or maybe you have the job and then you like find ways of taking credit for somebody else's work. Taking credit for their ideas. Because that you can use as leverage to get a raise or a promotion. Dishonesty for personal gain. God hates that. Or maybe intentionally... Um, Forgetting to pay someone back. Or you go out to eat, but then not tipping. I mean, at that point, what's the server going to do? I can't spend your food anymore. You already ate it. Withholding money that you should give to someone, God hates that. So when the tax collectors and soldiers came to John and said, hey, what shall we do? He said, stop lying and taking advantage of people to pad your pockets. Because when it comes down to it, God is calling us to put honesty and people ahead of money every single time. And it can feel like it's not that big of a deal. It's a couple bucks. But in Luke 16, Jesus was talking about money when he said, the one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. The one who's dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. So those little ways that we take advantage of others, those little ways we lie in order to bring in a few extra bucks, it's a sign, whether we like it or not, that we would do more for a bigger payout. That's what Jesus is saying. So maybe there's, there's a, you know, you want to sell your car. So you post on Facebook Marketplace, but you kind of neglect to mention that $2,000 repair that you know it needs, but it isn't immediately noticeable. Like they drive around the block a couple times, it's not going to show up. Those who are dishonest and little are also dishonest in much. So maybe if we're willing to be dishonest to take advantage of someone over $5, it could be the only reason we haven't done it for $500 or $5,000 or $5 million is because we haven't had the chance yet. Dishonesty is a habit. So to handle money God's way, we need to be ethical and put people and honesty ahead of money every single time. So God calls us 
to be content, to be ethical. And last, he calls us to be generous. To be generous, to be quick to give what I have to someone who needs it, to be open-handed with my things. You know, being generous certainly applies to far more than just money and possessions. Like God has given us time and skills and all sorts of things that we can be generous with. So yes, be generous with your time, your talents, and everything else. Go give that 30 minutes to Lincoln every, every couple of weeks or every month. Be generous with your time. Today, though, we're going to look a little more specifically at money and possessions and what generosity looks like there. And as I say this, I realize that there are some of you in this room that I'm sure are just right now in a really tough financial spot. You are doing everything you can, but there's still not enough money to make the ends meet. If that's you, I want to let you know that we want, we want to help. We want to find ways to help you as a church. So please let us know. We would love to sit down and hear some of your story and how we can help. And even this morning, as I've, as I've talked to some people, the number of people that have said some things about how they were once in that spot where they needed help, and now they're thankfully in a spot where they can be generous financially. Several people have been there. So please, if you need help, let us know, and we'll see, we'll see how we can help you out. But here in Luke chapter 3, I want us to look again at what John the Baptist says in verse 11. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Be generous, be open-handed with whatever you have. I think, you know, sometimes we're tempted to think that like, ah, if I had more, I could be generous. If I had more, then I, then I would be able to give. But I, I think we need to stop for a second and read this again. Check that out there. If you have two tunics, share with him who has none. Two. Just two. Not, if you need to make room in your closet because you have like 50 tunics, and you want to get a new one that's maybe a different color, different pattern, different cut, then maybe consider giving some of the old ones away. What John's saying here is if you have two, you have enough to be generous. And also note the kind of generosity John is talking about here isn't giving to just anyone. It's someone who doesn't have a tunic. It's just someone who is in need. So the kind of generosity that John is saying we need to turn to if we're going to follow God isn't necessarily buying lunch for a friend who has plenty of money to pay for themselves and they'll probably pick up the tab the next time you go out. No, that's nice and I'll do that. Pay, pay for your friend's lunch. That's, that's nice. But this is really talking about giving to people who are struggling, who are in need, who don't have. And if you look ahead in the New Testament, God's call is not only to give to those in need, but also to give to those who are working to accomplish his mission. To give and be generous towards those who are, who are taking his mission of making Jesus and his love known to a lost and hurting world. But just because the Bible says something doesn't make it easy, right? John says, be generous. God says, be generous. And it's just not always that simple. And I think one of the reasons we struggle with this sometimes is because 
of how we view God when it comes to our money. You know, sometimes we can think of God as like this uh, IRS agent who's there like going through our receipts with a fine-tooth comb, looking for all the ways that we have spent our money wanting to try to find that dime that went to the wrong place. But I really don't think that's an accurate picture. I want to tell a story here to hopefully maybe reorient how, how I believe God looks at us when it comes to generosity. A few years ago, my oldest two kids, Asher and Eden, they were four and three at the time. Now they came home from church on Sunday with these little coin bank things that looked like rice bowls. Now down in MP Kids, they told them like, hey, take these home and fill them up because there are people in the world who don't have enough food to eat. So go home, take this, fill it up, bring them back, and then we'll smash them and give the money to people who could really use some help. Give it to an organization who can, who can help people get food who need it. My wife took the kids home, and then she sent me a picture of what happened as soon as they got there. Here's the picture. They immediately four years old, three years old, ran to the room, grabbed their piggy banks, dumped them out on the floor, and stuffed every last penny they had into those rice bowls. Three years old, four years old, they weren't thinking about the toy or the candy that they were giving up by doing this. They were excited to fill those banks to help people. Now think about me as their dad in that moment. When this picture showed up on my phone, how do you think I responded? What do you think my reaction was? Well, the first thing I did was I smiled. (laughs) I was so proud of them. They were so happy and excited to give everything they had to people who were in need. I got home a couple of hours later and, and then I did something else. I pulled out my wallet and gave them more money. I gave them more money. Now this, to be clear, this was not me replacing what they had just given away. I was not trying to take away their sacrifice. I wasn't replenishing their piggy bank account so that they could still go get that candy or that toy. I gave them more money because I saw how excited they were and I knew that it would get stuffed into that rice bowl along with all of their coins. I wanted to fuel their generosity. I wanted to multiply their joy and that's exactly what happened. I hand them a few bills and they folded them up and shoved them in those banks right away. Eden, look, daddy gave us more money for our rice bowls. And my joy in seeing them give, it had absolutely nothing to do with how much was in that bank, how much they gave. I mean, look at that. How much is there? Like, I don't know, seven bucks worth of change? Seven dollars doesn't solve world hunger. But it was something And to my kids, it was everything. It was everything they had. And it was their joy. It was their willingness to sacrifice. It was their desire to get involved that had me as their dad going, yes, that's it. That's it. That's the heart I want to cultivate. That's what I want to see continue to grow in you because you get it. You get it. 
And that's exactly what I believe God's posture is towards us when it comes to generosity. He's not some angry old man with a calculator scoffing at every dime that we misplace. He's our father who sees our generosity and smiles and says, yes, that is it. That is what I'm talking about. God wants to fuel our generosity. So he is in turn generous with us. Not to take away the sacrifice it was for us to give. Not so that we can keep all 18 streaming services. Not so that we can still buy that new car every three years. Not so that we can buy all the clothes we want. But he is generous with us so that we can keep giving and experiencing the joy. Sharing in his joy of joining with him in showing and sharing his love to this world. That's what 2 Corinthians 9.11 says. It says you will be enriched in every way. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. God is generous to people who are generous so they can keep being generous. Now make no mistake, this isn't because God needs our money. God is not light on resources. He is the creator of the universe. If he really needs something, he can just speak it into existence, right? So God doesn't need us in this. And so the call to generosity is an invitation to join in what he is doing by putting his love on display in this world. God's call to generosity is him saying, hey, look look at what I'm doing. Look at what you could be a part of. Stop, Stop chasing those things over there. Stop chasing that stuff. What you're looking for isn't there. I'm inviting you to something more, something greater. I'm giving you the opportunity to get in on the joy of giving sacrificially for the good of others. It's an invitation from God when he says, be generous. If you have two tunics, give one to someone who doesn't have one. Give give towards my mission in this world. And this invitation from God, this invitation to generosity, it is ultimately an invitation for us to become more like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this. For you know, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now, I really want to make sure that you all hear this. So I want us to read this together. It's up there. Let's read it together. Ready? 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, So that by his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus, the rich king of the universe, embraced poverty for us. The riches of heaven, beyond anything we could imagine, beyond anything we could fathom, beyond anything we could wrap our minds around, they were all his. And he became poor. So poor that he was born in a barn. So poor, the Bible says, he didn't have a place to lay his head. Jesus, the maker of the universe. Homeless. For us. Do you see, do you see how generous he is? 
But Jesus' generosity didn't stop there. Not only did he become poor, but he gave of himself, sacrificing to the ultimate degree, laying down not just the glory and riches of heaven, but laying down his own life. We were in desperate need, and Jesus gave his life for us. Do you see how generous he is? Jesus laid down his royal crown in heaven for a crown of thorns on earth. He left the praises of angels for the insults of executioners. Jesus set aside the comfort of heaven for the nails of the cross. He got up from his throne to be laid in a borrowed tomb. The rich king became poor that we might become rich. Do you see how generous he is? But Jesus still was not done. His generosity did not even end at the cross. He is still quick to give for our good. Jesus takes our guilt and gives us his grace. He takes our shame and gives us his honor. He takes our death and gives us his life. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. I could go on and on, but the point is this. Do you see how generous he is? This is our rich king who became poor, that we might become rich in him beyond anything we could ever imagine, beyond anything we'd ever collect in a million lifetimes here. He has offered us so much more. And while those who trust in their riches will fall, those who trust in Jesus never will because he is the risen king of kings with all authority on heaven and on earth. He cannot and will not ever be shaken. He cannot fall. He cannot even be shaken. And so when we stand in him, we stand in the power of Christ, we will stand forever with him. So when we see God inviting us to join what he's doing in this world, when we see God as our father saying, yes, Yes, keep going, keep giving. When we see Jesus, our Savior, and his generosity to us, I mean, what other response is there that we can have but to say yes to God's invitation and to follow after Jesus in his example of generosity? What else can we do? There is no other response that is fitting other than to go and to give and and to be generous for the sake of God's kingdom. That is the only response that makes any sense to this. And so what does wisdom look like in handling our money? It's not about protecting assets or growing portfolios or or collecting things or collecting comforts or experiences. The wisest thing we can possibly do with our money and possessions is to join God in what he's doing in this world. To give to those in need and to fuel the mission of those making his son and love known. And when we do that, when we pursue that good, there will be benefit for us too. That's not why we do it, but we will thrive like a green leaf. There will be life and abundance for us in ways that we can't even begin to imagine that that blow any abundance of money and possessions out of the water. Say yes to God's invitation to generosity. Say yes. It is wor- I promise you, it will be worth it. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your generosity to us. God, we were so needy, so undeserving, and yet you gave 
You did not even withhold your son for us, but you loved us so much that you gave your only son. That in him we might have every spiritual blessing, that we might have riches beyond what we could ever imagine. The greatest of which is the richness of being with you. God, grow our hearts. Grow our hearts to be generous. God, we pray that you would help us to be content. We pray that you would convict us if we've been unethical with our money. But more than any of that, God, we pray that you would stir our hearts, give our hearts get our hearts bigger towards generosity because if, if we grasp that, those other things will fall in line as we see how great your kingdom is and how great the work you're doing is. God, we love you. We thank you that you have loved us so richly. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.